0: Welcome to Morning Commute, navigating new and emerging HR-positive breast cancer care paradigms. In this episode, biomarker testing in HR-positive breast cancer, if the shoe fits, Dr. Brufsky and Dr. Heather MacArthur discuss biomarkers and the ins and outs of molecular testing in patients with HR-positive breast cancer. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo and in AstraZeneca. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash HRpositivebreast3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Brufsky is professor of medicine at UPC Hillman's Cancer Center at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Dr. MacArthur is the clinical director of breast oncology in the Department of Internal Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Brufsky will begin our discussion.
1: So welcome back, Heather. This is our final podcast in our series of hormone receptor-positive metastatic breast cancer. Uh, Now, let's talk about some biomarkers and the ins and outs of molecular testing uh, in these patients. Um, Again, the first question really is when to test. And so when would you test a patient with HER2-positive disease, say, you know, metastatic disease? At diagnosis, you know, at at relapse um, for various biomarkers? um, uh, Or, you know, which ones would you test for? I mean, obviously, we all test for ERPR HER2. Um, Upfront, uh, but when would you use next gen, for example? When you use next gen sequencing?
2: For our hormone receptor positive uh, metastatic patients, I mean, yeah. Um, so I have to admit, historically, um, because again, I always biopsy to confirm metastatic disease whenever it's safe and feasible. I would never give someone a metastatic diagnosis without being absolutely sure. So I t- historically did genomic testing on that initial metastatic biopsy, but with the recent successful drug development of l for ESR1 mutated hormone receptor positive breast cancer, um, having progressed after aromatase inhibitor therapy in the palliative setting, I've changed my pa- practice to some degree. And I now wait for first progression before I test, although I have to admit I'm always sort of academically curious from the onset about the biologic drivers of disease, but the Canadian in me that's resource allocation minded um, knows that if it's not going to impact your decision-making, you probably shouldn't order the test. So I tend to do it less at metastatic diagnosis um, and less. um, I was doing it serially for for a time at diagnosis and then at progression, but I have Come to terms with the fact that my um, diagnostic biopsy wasn't directly informing treatment decisions, and now I'm typically waiting for progression. What about you?
1: Got uh, the same thing. First progression. So you know, someone's been on in, the, in AI, you know, for three, four, five years uh, with the CDK, and then I will probably do it then. You know, when I see them start to progress. And what's your turnaround you- time? Well, go ahead. We'll- I was going to say, what,
2: do you do? You test? Um, do you do blood? Do you do you tissue? Do you try and read biopsy?
1: Uh, it's so much easier for me to do blood. I'll tell you, I just it's so just to order a garden or something like that, or whatever your favorite one is. And I, I tend to use garden. I mean, obviously there's Tempest XT, there's Foundation Liquid, Keras Liquid. I mean, there's all these various liquids. Um, it's just a lot easier for me to do liquid. And I don't know, I don't know what your take on it is, but. I think that they're fairly concordant, at least for PA3 kinase and for ESR1, uh, and so I just it's just easier for me to do. I don't know. Do you use liquid that often, or you do it on the tumor itself?
2: I am doing it on liquid. I mean, I think we saw, you know, good data from the Alpelisib experience that you could do it on liquid, and then if you didn't identify a PI3CA mutation, then you could go to the tumor and test tumor. For ESR1 mutations, the liquid biopsy seems to be more than adequate. So I'm doing less tumor um, interrogation and more liquid biopsy these days.
1: Now let me, now what about? Here's a clinical scenario. So you do a liquid and it's there's no mutations found. And so is that because there are no circulating DNA or because there really are no mutations? And so would you reflex back to the tumor itself if you got that result?
2: Probably would, although it won't answer my ESR1 mutation question. I guess at that right. juncture, um, but it might inform me about a pic 3 ca mutation that's actionable. Um, so I might, if there were an easily accessed uh, focus, like a you know superficial lymph node, I might be tempted to rebiopsy at that time. Um, particularly if they've been on first line therapy for an extended period of time.
1: And so, yeah, so that'll be a related question. Do you serially, since you do liquid, do you do serial liquid? Do you do it every couple months, every year? Are you doing that at all or not?
2: No, I, no not off-study. Typically, once I've done the progression and made a decision about l or not, and um, Alpalisib or PIK3C8 um, mutation status, I'm not, um, you know, in the Capitello, AKT-targeted um, study, the benefit was agnostic, even though it's targeting that PIC3C, um, PI3K, AKT pathway, um, the benefits seem to be agnostic. So I can't really justify doing downstream uh, reinterrogation off study.
1: Yeah, interesting. You know, because I mean, I think, you know, I have been doing it, but I, I'm not really constant. I mean, we participate in Serena 6, just to kind of mm-hmm. give everybody the the the... It's basically a trial where you get a garden for ESR-1, uh, and only ESR-1, they won't report the rest of it, uh, every three months. And if the patient, you're on a CDK for at least six months with an AI, and if your ESR-1 turns positive, you're randomized to camisestrin and oral SURD and continued palvocyclib or continued AI and palvocyclib. And about 10% of the time, at least for now, people are converting. So I will do that. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about, I mean, before we get into some of the other other, uh, markers, you know, there's a lot of talk about MRD and and levels of ctDNA, you know, not necessarily mutations in particular, but actually levels of ctDNA being prognostic. You know, we have all these trials now where, oh, you know, I forgot the last one. I think there was one at ESMO. You know, said, oh, the ctDNA levels are dropping, and that correlates with response. I mean, you know, I don't know if I would use that outside of a clinical trial right now. I don't know your thoughts about it. I
2: totally agree. I mean, I think it's pretty well established that changes in ctDNA correspond with prognosis. What I have yet to see is predictive impact, namely that you could pivot based on that information and do something different that improves outcomes for our patients. So, although I think that's interesting and certainly our patients are asking for it all the time. Um, I'm not yet sure off study how to use that in the absence of that kind of predictive data.
1: Well, again, I'll I'll, I'll reveal my age by saying, I remember the SWOG trial with circulating tumor cells. I mean, you probably remember circulating tumor cells from a decade ago, you know, more than a decade ago, about 15 years ago, that was the hot thing, right? You know, if you treated someone and the circulating tumor cells didn't go down, that was a poor prognostic sign, right? And so we did this randomized trial. It was, I forgot the name, it was a SWOG. I think it was SWOG, um, where they basically took people, did a circulating tumor cells. If it was greater than five, your prognosis was worse. They randomized you after one month. If you had continued elevated circulating cells after one month of therapy, you were randomized to switch therapy or continue. And there was no difference in progression-free survival. Now, one could argue we didn't really have good enough therapy back then but I was, I put 35 people on that study. I think 35, if not remember, That's a long time ago. Wow. And, you know, I, I, I was really excited about it, but it didn't work. And the question is, is this going to be the same thing, just a little more sophisticated from a DNA level? We're looking at DNA and not the cells. I don't know the answer. And I think that it's just really interesting to kind of understand where we're going with this whole MRD stuff and circulating DNA as a prognostic factor. And I don't know what your thoughts on this, but I'm kind of, I've been burnt in the past. And so I'm conservative about it. I agree with you. I'm not sure I'm going to do it outside of a clinical trial. I don't know what your thoughts are. On
0: that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I have healthy skepticism. I think um, it, it is reminiscent of efforts past. Um, I think there's more enthusiasm on the part of patients. And I think there's more direct patient communication about um, liquid biopsies, quote unquote, and um, it sounds sexy and appealing to patients. I have patients coming in all the time asking for a liquid biopsy or coming in with the liquid biopsy information that I don't know what to do with. Um, So I think there's um, more of a groundswell now (laughs) than um, there is uh, increased scientific insight, unfortunately. But hopefully, hopefully we get there. Hopefully we get there. It'd be great, especially in the curative intent setting, right, to be able to identify high-risk patients and be able to do
1: something. Right. And be able to say early treatment made a difference. Exactly. So one thing that comes up with liquid biopsy a lot, not a lot, but... You do a liquid biopsy, and then you get a BRCA one or two mutation in it. Um, somatic mutation. You get a somatic one. Yep. Now, here's the issue. Let me—that raises a bunch of different issues in the metastatic settings, especially in ER positive disease. I mean, I think that in triple negative, I think most of us agree at this point in time that everybody will have probably had a germline BRCA test is triple negative. Um, maybe some with low risk. Maybe some with low risk disease may not have, but. I think the vast majority of triple negative patients in the United States right now, we're probably going to get BRCA tested or should. I think the real question is an ear, you have some ear positive metastatic breast cancer. It's not for screening anymore. It's a biomarker. So do you do germ, let's start it this way. Do you do germline BRCA testing on all of your ear positive metastatic patients now or not?
2: Most of them now probably get it at some point instead, or sorry, Often they're getting it more at early stage diagnosis, right? If they high, have high risk disease and they're a potential candidate for adjuvant elaparib, So often right. when they become metastatic, you inherit them with that information more than we did historically. Am I doing them in everyone? I, I wouldn't say everyone, um, You know, the the metastatic PARP inhibitor data, progression-free survival improvement, three months, no overall survival advantage. Do I feel like everybody needs access to that opportunity? Not necessarily, especially for hormone receptor positive disease where they have so many other great options, um, that might confer survival advantage. So I'm not doing it for, for everyone, but I'm doing it in selected patients where maybe I've run out or I'm running out of oral options. Um, and, um, I'm looking for one additional oral option before I start to move towards chemotherapy strategies. I don't, I can't say that I have a very consistent practice in that regard.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the issue is that, you know, what will happen is that, you know, you'll be doing a next gen on someone, a liquid, like a garden or something like that, and you'll get like a BRCA1 mutation with allele frequency of like 30% or something like that, or 40%. And it's obvious that it's probably, you know, germline. Do you reflex germline, if you get that? Like, do you, or you just treat on the somatic, if you had a choice?
2: So I have a patient right now who does not have a germline mutation, who does have a somatic mutation, um, who progressed on first-line endocrine therapy pretty quickly, actually. And um, I did put her on um, a PARP inhibitor. And actually, there's pretty compelling growing body of data with Olaparib and Telazoparib that in patients who um, have somatic mutations in the absence of germline mutations that they can benefit from CARP inhibitor if administered early on in the course of disease. So I do have that exact patient and she seems to be doing great on, uh, I have her on Olaparib.
1: Yeah, you know, we participated in the TVCRC trial that Nadine Tung did, mm-hmm. which was the that got published. I think it was in JCO about a year ago or something. And we put people on that. ATM didn't work, unfortunately. I thought it was going to work. The only ones that really worked were brc one brc 2 and I think germline PALB, PALB2, but not somatic. I don't remember. Maybe CHECK2 worked as well uh, in that. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting to kind of figure out where to go with this and whether, you know, you, everybody should just get the germline BRCA, which is truly the companion diagnostic, or treat people with a somatic BRCA. And I think that Generally, I'll reflex it out anyway to germline if I get a somatic test. If I do a next gen and it comes back positive at some frequency, allele frequency, I'll reflex out because you want to know the family probably wants to know what's going on. Uh. You know, the relatives, the daughters and the the sisters and the the cousins and things like that. So I'll generally reflex it out for germline anyway. Uh, So, uh, you know, but it's that patient, that uncommon patient. Who has a somatic mutation but not a germline one? I still think I would treat them uh, with a with a PARP inhibitor. The other thing that's kind of you know I think that we really have to focus on in brc one and, and two uh, is that you know when it was a screening test, variants of unknown significance I guess were okay, right? Because you know it's whether you screen the family or not. But this is a diagnostic. This is this is a predictive test now both in the metastatic and early setting. It has a survival advantage in the early setting. And so where I'm going with this is we have all these variants of unknown significance. And if you had a VUS, you weren't included in the Olympia trials or Olympiad trials either. You had to have a pathogenic mutation. But the definition of pathogenic mutations keeps changing. (laughs) And I think that, you know, what do we do now? You know, you you do a a germline BRAC on somebody and they're VUS. What are you going to do with that?
2: Or are you proposing you know, a clinical trial? Because there are enough um, VUSs in, in my clinical
1: practice to... Um, there you go. I mean, yeah. what do you do with the VUS and how do you define it? And I just think it's a plea to the companies to kind of, you know, you know, and our our genetic colleagues, our genomics, our genetics colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. you know we need to know, you know, the worst thing to have happen. It's like an ER of like 8%. You know, do you treat patients with with, uh, with hormone therapy or not. And, and well, actually, I- we'll talk about that in a minute. That just brings that up before we get to her too. with finally, but the thing is that, you know, what do you do? You know, what do you do with those VUSs? I think that I won't treat them. Okay. I, I don't think a will would be approved. I don't think insurers will let me even use it. So I, at that point, I'm probably not going to do anything with a VUS. I mean, what do you do with your VUSs in your clinic?
2: I ignore them. Yeah, really. I ignore them because I don't have any, data, I mean, that would be a little bit too far out of the box for me without any supporting data, so I I wouldn't do that. But let me ask you a question. Do you think it matters? Because one of the pressures that I think clinicians feel, um, healthcare providers feel, is a lot of marketing pressure from the various companies that are doing all of this genomic interrogation for us now if we're only looking for maybe three different mutations, pick 3 ca germline BRCA, and ESR,
1: mm-hmm.
2: does it matter?
1: Her two mutations also. And yeah.
2: HER2 mutation. Yeah, that's a story for a different day, but you're right, HER2 mutations as well. Does it matter? Because I think it's a little overwhelming, and you know a lot about this topic. I think it's a lot of, it's very overwhelming Um, There are so many companies um, who are doing this kind of work, but if we're only looking for a handful, because I always wonder if they're offering 1,000 versus 10,000 versus 100,000 areas of interrogation, does it really matter if I'm only looking at these four key areas? Do you think it matters or are they all interchangeable? No,
1: it does not. I mean, they're offering whole exome. I mean, that's the big thing, you know? You know, what are you going to do with the data? I mean, I, as a kind of a science person, you know, love it. I mean, as an academic science translational guy, that part of me loves it, you know, but the clinician to me is like, well, what am I going to do with the data? You know, if I have this weird mutation, you know, I have no idea what to do with it. And I think that it's, I like it because we're collecting the data and retrospectively, hopefully we'll have some insights at some point in the future when we discover some new gene, at least the data is sitting there, you know, the DNA and you've, you've done the test, you've got the list of mutations, you know, and maybe if something comes up in the future and the patient's still, you know, alive, you can do something with that data. But right now, I agree with you. There's like four or five things that we can make decisions on. And what do we need whole exome for at this point and all these other mutations? I agree with you. I, mean, I
2: think that's a comforting message. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I, th- I think that people are very much overwhelmed and that companies focus a lot on information that isn't necessarily clinically relevant and it makes people feel dumb. Um, or uninformed, um, and it makes decision-making about, you know, which is the best choice for their patient very difficult. Um, So I think to remove that pressure is, I think, a public service out
1: of... Well, I explain it to people, I explain to people, like, look, you know, we can make clinical decisions on a couple of these, but we're doing it, maybe there could be clinical trials you're eligible for, maybe in the future. That's kind of how I pitch it to at least the patient um, to help us out a little bit with that. But I agree, it's it's, it's put on a level of complexity in this whole business um, mm-hmm. right now that I'm not sure where we're going to go with it. But, you know, again, it has to be done. Um, so the last thing really to talk about, well, I want to talk with ER, but let's talk about HER2. You know, in an era of HER2 ADCs, do we still need to test for HER2? You know, if we have data from, you know, I think I forgot the trial, Deborah, one of the other trials, I forgot the name of it, where there was a cohort that was HER2 zero that responded to trastuzumab t tcan mm-hmm. And now we're doing this ultra-low testing in DBO 6 um, The question is, do we need to do HER2 testing at all?
2: I think that's the direction that we're potentially going in. I think we're waiting to see the definitive um, destiny breast um, study that included these ultra-low patients. So again, to have a one-plus IHC designation, 10%, of cells have to express HER2. But if you have 9% or fewer cells expressing HER2, you're deemed HER2 zero. So the HER2 zero is a little misleading in that it's not the complete absence of HER2. And if these ADCs are targeting HER2 but have this bystander effect you know that overcomes heterogeneity by demolishing all of the cells within the vicinity, regardless of their HER2 status, um, then maybe it doesn't matter. Um, the ASCO CAP experts reviewed HER2 testing recently and decided that there was inadequate evidence to change the HER2 testing recommendations at that at this time. Um, but I do imagine that in the near future, anticipating that that ultra low population will benefit from um, the trastuzumab, can antibody direct conjugate, that it could become immaterial. Now, academically, I think it'll be very difficult to persuade pathologists that they no longer have to do HER2 testing after almost 50 <laughs> years, right, of HER2 testing. Um, <laughs> so I think that would be a very... Um, um, difficult um, challenge for us. I mean, change is hard, of course, um, for for people. And so I think buy-in, because um, that would represent a huge paradigm change. But, it, but if it's relevant, if the drugs are relevant to everyone, regardless of HER2 status, then why bother testing?
1: Well, the thing is that we also have a lot of drugs that we need to use that require HER2 amplification. I mean, you know, don't forget about TDM, they're still there. Trastuzumab is still there. TDM1 is still there. You know, we still have drugs. Pertuzumab is still there. But maybe that
2: goes downstream, right? TDM1 has moved, you know, from the first line setting to, I don't even know where it lives now, fourth, fifth, sixth line. Do you test? Are we moving to a space where you might test those niche people who get through these HER2 agnostic Um, treatments, and then you're at a later line testing, looking for HER2 enrichment at that time.
1: But we still need to know in the early setting for neoadjuvant therapy. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. We still need that. And so we're going to have that historical test in everybody anyway. We're going to know what their primary tumor was. But I agree in the metastatic setting, it becomes a little bit more interesting. And I think especially if DDXD, you know, I forgot what it is, Destiny 9, Is that DXD versus THP, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that if that trial turns out to be in favor of the DXD and there's no reason to think it won't, you know, it becomes a really interesting question about whether we need to do HER2 testing anymore.
2: Well, and then what about HER3 testing?
1: Right. Well, no, it turned out, you know, from the trials, I think it's patritrutumab, I think is the name Mm -hmm. of the ABC. Exactly. I don't think HER3 testing mattered, right? It doesn't look like it. Yeah. And so, you know, we may not have to test for anything. It's really weird. I mean, Dennis Slayman, I saw him give a presentation recently. It was kind of tongue in cheek, you know, as Dennis can be, you know, he said, this may just be a way of delivering low dose DXD to people, you know, and who needs the, uh, who needs the antigen sort of thing. And so it's really interesting. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, we'll have to see. Um, but one last, you know, so one last thing to kind of comment on this, I think that Again, you know, we have all these novel technologies that people are using, you know, like, you know, digital HER2, you know, AI, looking at, at cell slices to see how much HER2 is in this specimen or, you know, um, a quantitative immunohistochemical testing, which is great, all wonderful things to do. But to me, I think you get more bang for the buck just getting your pathologist, at least at this point in time, since we're still doing it, to really understand HER2 low you know, and really kind of, they really weren't focusing on it forever. And I think now that they're focusing on it, we're getting a lot more patients eligible for some of these agencies.
2: Yeah, and we, we might, you know, be looking, there's a lot of attention on the tumor microenvironment too, right? We're talking about tumor specific features. Could you imagine a world, especially an AI driven world where the fibroblasts and macrophage and T cells and whatever else are being used in conjunction with these conventional biomarkers and novel biomarkers to predict for responses. That would be the
1: penultimate. I agree. And I'll take it one even, I'll take it even further than that. I think somebody somewhere should do whole GWAS on people to find out what's associated with metastasis and progression. And I bet you there's going to be host genomics that are related probably to this immune microenvironment that determine things like that. And I think, again, AI will help us, you know, when you've got, when you do whole genomes. So everybody that walks in the door maybe get a a whole genome of their tumor, somatical genome, and get a whole genome of their germline. And someone will put it together to estimate their risk of progression and what's going to happen. I mean, that's way in the future. But I can see something like that happening eventually. So,
2: looking at the tumor, the tumor microenvironment, and the uh, germline oh. predisposition of the affected individual. Yeah, that I be think amazing.
1: Going to have something like that one day. I'll be long retired and it's playing. Very golf. futuristic. I'll <laughs> be playing golf somewhere. I'll, so, be, I'll, I'll be, be, be
2: doing <laughs> one of these podcasts in twenty years, talking about how I remember the day that we debated.
1: Yeah, you got, you got it. Anyway. So that's great. So that was a good wrap up. I think that, um, you know, right now, I think at least for me, uh, I think clearly, you know, the ERPR HER2 uh, still are not going anywhere. I think that we're getting better uh, at at, uh, HER2 low. We may not, we may or may not need it in the metastatic setting. We'll have to see. Uh, And I think, again, most people would get some sort of germline test, I mean, some sort of somatic testing, uh, NGS, you know, probably at first progression. I think that's kind of a good way of summarizing this up. Do you have any final thoughts?
2: No, 100 percent. Getting that um, genomic insight at progression is critically important for this specific population as it does specifically impact downstream treatment decisions, so really important.
1: Great. Well again, thanks Heather and uh, uh, thank everybody for listening to us. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash HR Positive Breast 3. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service or download our morning commute app. Thank you for joining us today.